My mic isn't working. Now I'm on. Rejected. Repudiated. Shot down. Thumbs down. Aren't you glad you came this morning? No matter what word or what phrase you describe it as, it hurts. You put yourself out there, you you think about something, you, you, you consider something, you pray about something, you have the courage to do something, and then you're just shot down. Maybe it's the, the young man who finally gets up the courage to ask out the girl of his dreams for a date and she laughs at it. Maybe it's the politician who loses an election. Maybe it's the person who has put a great deal of thought into an invention and they're turned down for a patent. We think about those things. We think about what it means to be rejected for something. We know it hurts because even though it may not necessarily be true, it's hard to get past the concept that we feel as if we are being rejected. That you are being rejected. Not, not just the idea, not just the concept, but, but you actually are. But then take it up another level. How does it feel to be rejected for doing what's right? Not just something in the world, not just asking for a date, not just trying to get a, a book deal or something like that, but for actually standing for what's right and doing what's right. If you've ever had that feeling, Jesus understands. In fact, 700 years before He came on the scene as far as His earthly life, it was prophesied He would know what that was like. Because in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3, it was prophesied He was despised and rejected of men. And very often, the reason I chose this picture, when we think about that particular prophecy, we think of the cross. But I want to suggest to you this morning, that wasn't the only time when Jesus fulfilled and understood that prophecy and what it feels like to be rejected for doing what's right. And one of those times is in that reading we had a few moments ago from Mark chapter 6. I hope you have your Bibles open there. We're going to use Mark 6 as well as some things from Luke in a few minutes. But this was a long reading. I know it was. But I wanted to take these couple of, of sections of Scripture together. As Jesus is in His hometown, and as Jesus has an account here that, that begins fairly well after He's teaching in the synagogue, that's good. But by the time everything turns out here, it's not good. He's rejected in His own hometown. But his, it's his reaction to that, as far as what Mark records for us, that also helps us to see something of what it means to how we should react when we are rejected for doing what's right. It is remarkable to me, when you read through the Gospel accounts, that absolutely nothing could keep Jesus or take Jesus off of His mission. It would be easy enough to think, you know, here are two or three things that, that sort of put him, off, you know, put him off for a little while. Never! Nothing, not even being rejected in his own hometown, could move him off the mission of seeking and saving the lost and of being able to say on the cross, it is finished. It is accomplished. When Jesus was rejected, he kept working. And I want to use his example this morning under this text from Mark chapter 6, thinking of three observations, looking at the text, but hopefully making some applications for our lives when we are rejected, ultimately rejected for doing what is right, saying what is right. Observation number one, one of my favorite pictures I've ever found, is an astonished reaction. This was a fun image search, by the way. 
and astonished reaction. Mark reminds us that Jesus is his own hometown. We know that to be Nazareth. Luke will fill in that detail for sure, just in case we didn't know that. Mark reminds us it's the Sabbath day, the day the Jews came together for, for worship and religious discussions, and Jesus is in that gathering together place, the synagogue. It was not unusual, by the way, for, if you want to think of it this way, a guest rabbi, especially a hometown rabbi, to be asked to, to read the, the text for that day, to make some comments about the text. There's nothing unusual about how this particular account begins. But they know Jesus. And they're astonished by what He says and what He is doing. In fact, the, mark, the word that Mark uses for astonished comes from a Greek term that means to be blown out or pushed away. You could actually paraphrase this as Jesus blew their minds. They could not get their mind. It was beyond the, the level of capability for them to grasp that this individual was able to, to say and to do the things that he was doing right there in his hometown. And part of the reason was they knew him. They knew his history. They, they even rehearsed some of it. Is, is not this the carpenter? By the way, the word translated carpenter is actually a more generic term. The word literally just means a craftsman. He, he could have been a carpenter. He could have been a stonemason or anything else where you work with hands in a, in a craft sort of way. He could have been multiples of those things. But Nazareth and the surrounding region was known in part for woodworking. And so very often, Bible translators use the word carpenter. But the word just means a craftsman. Jesus was someone who worked with his hands. But whatever it was, whether he was a carpenter or a stonemason or whatever it was... The reason they ask that question is not to, not to put down the, the position or the occupation, but because they couldn't grasp how someone who had that kind of work and that kind of upbringing could have also had this kind of education. Could have, that type of that occupation didn't lend itself to some grand religious education. Here he is, this, this rabbi with amazing teaching and a following. It doesn't, that doesn't make sense. And they also knew his family. That They even rehearsed it for us. Mary, his mother, they, they call his four brothers by name. We know them better as half-brothers. They remind us that Jesus had at least two sisters. They use the word in plural. And again, they're not saying that to put down Mary or the brothers or the sisters. They're saying that because they, they know this family. They know Joseph, his earthly father, was also a, a craftsman of some kind. And none of the brothers, none of the sisters, Mary, none of them had gone to rabbi school or anything like that. It, it just didn't make any sense. That this man that they knew so well by upbringing and by family and by, by occupation could be this. Could be this great teacher. Could have a following. Could actually have disciples. Could do the mighty works he was doing by his hands. Does that not say something about human nature? And does it not say something about how sometimes we might look at people the same way? I don't want to say these people were doing this, but you can actually sometimes see it taken a step farther to where I don't want someone to move beyond maybe a, a poor economic upbringing or a difficult neighborhood or something like that. I'll actually try to hold them back because I don't want someone breaking out of the mold of this particular way of living. Now, I'm not saying that's what these people are doing, but we see that from time to time in our culture. But even if it doesn't go that far, Sometimes we just look ourselves in the mirror and think, do I, in my mind, 
hold someone else back. I, I just can't believe that this person would be able to do that. It's an astonished reaction. But how we continue with that is what makes all the difference. You see, those on that day could have been astonished at what Jesus was saying and doing and opened up their ears and actually listened and this story would turn out very, very differently. But instead what it leads to is absolute rejection. Jesus takes the scroll. In fact, turn your Bible to Luke chapter 4. Because Luke fills in a whole lot of details. Mark simply tells us that Jesus taught. He doesn't give us the substance of it. He also records for us that the people were talking about how Jesus had done some mighty works with His hands. So Jesus either had done some miracles right there or uh, had done some in the region. But Mark doesn't fill in the details. Luke goes into a tremendous amount of detail about this particular interaction. And he reminds us of what Jesus was teaching and what Jesus was saying on that day. If you're in Luke chapter 4, look at verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And the verse goes on to tell us Jesus read that prophecy we'll read in a moment. Now again, this was nothing unusual. You may have heard mentioned before that synagogues in that day and time, sometimes the leader of the synagogue chose the readings for that day or that week or whatever. More often, they were scheduled sometimes years in advance. That here's going to be the reading for the next few months, the next few years. It is possible that by God's providence, this just happened to be the reading for that particular Sabbath day when Jesus just happened to be in Nazareth on that day. We don't know that, but it's possible. But look at what Jesus read from Isaiah. Verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that reading was not unusual. They might have known that was going to be the reading for the day. And the fact that Jesus, as a rabbi, was going to make some comments on that particular text, that would not have been unusual either. You would have expected that, that the rabbi would have made some comments about the reading for that particular day. But what Jesus said is where this whole narrative turns. Because he makes comments about a couple of things. First, he makes a comment about his own divinity. After he has rolled the scroll back up, verse 21 tells us, that he looked at those in, the, in the, uh, the synagogue and said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, this prophecy that you've known for, for many generations, for 700 years, and that you've loved, this is the time it's being fulfilled. And by extension, since Jesus is saying, Today, He is by extension saying, I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. My ministry, if you will, is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He was claiming divinity. He was claiming to be the one who was fulfilling that particular prophecy. But then he went further. Because before they could really get time to, to deeply react to it, Jesus begins to talk to them about the diversity of the gospel. And by that I don't mean there's more than one gospel. By that I mean the gospel is for all. He's in a synagogue. A Jewish synagogue, obviously. And he follows it up, that reading, by telling them, or reminding them, I should say, of a couple of accounts from the Old Testament. Neither one of which, the person who's helped, was a Jew. In verse 25, 
But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel, they were Jews, in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. She wasn't a Jew. Verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel, Jews, in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, and notice Jesus tells us where he was from, the Syrian. He wasn't a Jew either. Jesus was reminding these listeners of accounts they knew very, very well. They could have basically probably quoted the, the story of Elijah and the widow and the, and the account of, of Naaman and Elisha. They probably could have told you exactly what happened back then. But Jesus was reminding His listeners that here were two people who were not Jewish, but who not only helped the Old Testament narrative along, they also were the ones who were truly helped by the Lord in a time of need. And the combination of those two things, a claim of divinity and the fact that the Gospel is for all, was a bridge too far for those listeners. They did not like that Jesus was obviously claiming to be divine, but that also the Jews weren't the holder of everything. That God actually cared about the Gentiles. Which, by the way, is found many times in the Old Testament. These are just a couple that Jesus chose to use as, as examples in this setting. And based upon that then, you have the rejection of Jesus that's told to us in at least three different ways. First of all, there is a proverb found in Mark's account and Luke's account where Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and within or among his family. Jesus was speaking to that human nature that was saying, who is this guy? We, we know him. How, how can he possibly be this? But he was also trying to get them to open their eyes to the reality that he really was, yes, not just a prophet, but the, the real ultimate prophet, the fulfillment of prophecy. And they should have seen that because they've already talked about the fact he's been doing mighty works right here. They should have at least opened their ears, but they weren't going to. And so that leads then to a pass. In Mark, 4, excuse me, Mark 6, verse 5, Mark records for us an interesting phrase. He doesn't say Jesus did not do many miracles. He says He could do no miracles. Wait a minute. Did Jesus lose His power all of a sudden? No. In fact, it tells us He healed a few. He laid a hands on a few. But Mark specifically tells us that Jesus could do no miracles there because of their unbelief. This is a little bit of a parenthetical note that's very important for us to understand Scripture, but also understand our modern religious world. This account reminds us subtly of the purpose of miracles. Miracles were not a sideshow. Miracles were not something where you, you hung up a sign or had a radio, you know, radio ad and say, come out to the healing service. No. Miracles were done to confirm the Word of God and to prove that someone was from God. That's it. These people, the vast majority of them, were not going to believe in Jesus. They didn't want to. They were, to go back to the parable of the sower, they were wayside soil. 
They didn't want to hear this message about the kingdom. They didn't want to hear the truth that was right before them. And so because of that, Jesus was not going to do a sideshow. He wasn't going to, to make miracle working a three-ring circus. He could do no miracles because the purpose of the miracles was not in view among these people. So He took a pass. I'm not going to work miracles here. But then He also had to face a plot. Mark simply tells us that Jesus went about teaching. Luke fills in some very deep details. Because it's this, this time in the life of Christ when in Luke chapter 4, verses 19, excuse me, 29 and 30, we're told that the people took Jesus to the brow of the hill. Probably a place where there was sort of a, a cliff or a, a flat place right overlooking things and they were going to throw Him off. They were going to take His life. Presumably because He claimed divinity. But you might recall the account continues by telling us Jesus passed through their midst and left. Was it a miracle? Probably. Or did Jesus simply take charge of the situation? I don't know, but whatever it was, it showed a, a, a tremendous amount of power by Jesus to simply pass through the midst. But there is a plot against the life of Jesus. They are going to kill Him. This is not the cross. We are a long way, time-wise, from, from Calvary. And Jesus is in His hometown. And they want to kill Him. This is absolute rejection. How would you respond to that? Jesus had done nothing wrong. He had taught the truth. He had done miracles, a few. And He was completely rejected. Mark tells us that, in, in brief, that He went to some other villages teaching. But here's why I wanted us to continue our reading this morning and take in the next paragraph of the next section. Because Mark also tells us that it's either right now or very, very, very soon after this account that you have something about the apostles' responsibility. In fact, it's at this point that they truly become apostles. Oh, they've been chosen already in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 3, you have the list of names and here they are. But between Mark chapter 3 and now, they've still just been right with Jesus. They've been learning. They've been disciples, learners, followers. They've been hearing Him teach, watching Him perform miracles. They've been doing what disciples do. But Jesus chooses this season of His life to apostle them. Ones sent out. By the way, parenthetically, the apostles, we like them in part because they're so human. They make plenty of mistakes. You know, we talk about Peter's big mouth and and all the and you know, the the terribly nicknamed doubting Thomas. He had more faith than all of them at times. But we, we like to talk about their flaws. There are also times where some very strong qualities shine through. This is one of them. Their rabbi had just had a plot on his life, and where are they? Right there right there. And Jesus tells them, I'm going to send you out by twos, and by the way, don't even take bread with you. Wait, what? Folks, we can't leave Paducah without driving through and getting a coffee. Or a hot chocolate if you're a Christian. Um, 
they were going to just leave and go somewhere and all they were supposed to take was a walking stick and the clothes on their back, basically. That's it. Tremendous, tremendous fidelity in the moment. But more to our thoughts this morning, thinking about Jesus. Here He was at a time in His life when He had a plot against His life. But what's His reaction? He keeps working. He keeps teaching. And further than that, He chooses this as the season of His ministry to empower others to continue the ministry, to continue the message. Yes, in a limited sense. Only go to these people. Only do these things. But still, this is the time in which Jesus says, I want you to spread the Word. I want you to apostle, to be sent out. What a remarkable reminder. By the way, I don't know if it's coincidence or not. But I find it interesting that one of the examples that Jesus had used in the synagogue was Elijah. And did God not tell Elijah to do exactly the same thing? When Elijah was rejected in, in 1 Kings chapter 19 by Queen Jezebel, and we talk about how that angel of the Lord appeared to him and told him, you're not the only one. There's 7,000 who have not bowed the knees to Baal. And he tells him to eat some food, get some rest, those sort. We remember that, but sometimes we forget that in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 15 and 16, he told Elijah to go back toward Damascus, and when you get there, you appoint this guy as king over Syria, and you appoint this guy as king over Israel, and you take Elisha and bring him near to you, or bring him to you to work with you. Here was a time when the prophet Elijah was totally rejected, and yet part of the solution, if you will, to that was Elijah, you get back to work and you expand the work. Jesus is doing the same thing. Jesus would not let anything push Him off of His mission. And in fact, at a time where He was totally, completely rejected, He realized this is the time to empower others to continue that mission for when I'm no longer here. And that's really easy to preach. Because how does it feel when you're rejected for doing what's right? How does it feel when you're the one who has reached out to that lost neighbor, that cousin, over and 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 finally they say, leave me alone. How does it feel when you're the one who's tried to reach out to the erring? And you've done everything you know to do. You've visited, you've called, you've written, you've texted. And there's nothing. How does it feel when you're the one who's trying to raise godly children? I want to have that young person look at you and say, Mom, Dad, I don't believe this stuff anymore. You see, it's easy to preach this stuff. But it hurts so much to live. Jesus reminds us 
that we are rejected for doing what's right. It is okay to hurt. It is not okay to quit. In fact, it might just be the time that a door of opportunity opens that we never saw coming. And where God utilizes that rejection as one of the greatest blessings of our life. Jesus was only going to be on the earth for about another year and a half, maybe less than that. Obviously, miraculously in other ways, He could have spoken from heaven or rolled back clouds or done whatever He wanted to do to spread the message. But that wasn't His plan. His plan was just to have 12 guys and tell them later, by the way, it's up to you to cover the entire world with this message. What? And they did it. By the time you get to the book of Colossians, Paul would write that the message of the kingdom has been preached under the whole heaven. I have to believe that Mark chapter 6 played a role in that. That they looked at their rabbi completely rejected who would not stop. But who looked at them and said, you can do this. Brother or sister in Christ, the one thing we can never let rejection do it stops. If you're not a Christian, the one thing you cannot do this morning, are you listening? Are you listening? The one thing you cannot do this morning is reject the invitation of the one who died for you. Will you come to him when we say it's safe to encourage him?